Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. You would think by now that we've learned a lesson. Learned the lesson that open trade, free trade, open markets, that's the way to prosperity. Protectionism, tariffs, trade war, that's a dead end. And we're going down this path yet again. So I suspect Canadians would assume and expect our government to respond in kind. But it just it's frustrating to me that when another country shoots itself in the foot, we feel compelled to do the same here. So as the United States is poised to impose these steel and aluminum tariffs on Canada, Mexico and Europe. Remember, this was part of the tariffs he announced some months ago. There was an exemption for those countries, which will expire at midnight tonight. And we have the announcement that we are going to respond in kind. So on it goes. And this is, I think, headed to a bad place. But joining us to talk a bit more about, you know, the potential damage of, of going down this path, why we're at this point. Very pleased to welcome the program. Dan Eikenson, he is director of the Herbert A. Stifel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, Cato.org, also freetrade.org. Dan, thanks for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Are you surprised at all that, that we're at this point now? You know, I kind of am. Uh, all along, I've been holding out hope that uh, that the president uh, recognizes that, that that the president recognizes the dangers of doing this, uh, and that he was perhaps bluffing. Um, but you know, it turns out that he really is uh, a major departure from you know 80 years of U.S. trade policy history in terms of presidents. You know, the last 13 presidents from Republican or Democratic Party. Embrace trade. They saw trade as a win-win, and uh, and it's good to build relations among nations. It's good for the economies of all nations. Uh, this president sees Trump as a, sees trade as a zero-sum game. Uh, there's a winner and a loser. And I think what motivates these tariffs is the view that the U.S. is losing at trade, and that that and that is informed by the trade deficit that we have. We have exports are America's points, imports are the foreign team's points. We have a trade deficit with the world that means we're losing. That means they're cheating. And he wants other governments to um, to make efforts to reduce that deficit by buying more stuff from the United States or selling us less stuff. And this whole ruse around the steel tariffs was that there was this national security uh, concern that the, the U.S. is too reliant on imports of steel. And so he's uh, he used the, the broad discretion that's afforded him under the statute to try to bend the arms of the, of the Canadians and the Mexicans and the Europeans and the Koreans uh, to do things that we want, uh, whether it's relent on U.S. demands in the NAFTA negotiations, uh, buy more U.S. steel, sell us less steel. Uh, it, but regardless, it, it didn't work. Uh, and, and it's a good thing that uh, the Canadians and the Europeans and Mexicans have not caved into this pressure. The bad news is that the only real way to do anything about it is to retaliate. But when you retaliate, as you mentioned at the top, 
you're imposing taxes on your own people. And uh, so you want to figure out a way to minimize that damage, and you want to set the tariffs in such a way, the retaliatory tariffs in such a way that it motivates policymakers in the United States to do something about the original sin. So going after bourbon from Kentucky and, uh, you know, tobacco from Kentucky, cheese from Wisconsin, that goes after the, the Senate Majority Leader and the Speaker of the House, yeah. their, their, their jurisdiction. So uh, maybe that would be a good approach, but uh, it's too bad we've gotten here and things could get worse. Yeah, they could, and that's a big concern. Dan, let me ask you about these these two industries, steel and aluminum, because we, we know they're not what they once were, at least in terms of the number of people working in these industries. But, I mean, the U.S. both imports and exports steel and aluminum, which you would expect in, in you know in a free trading system. But are, are these industries really in need of saving? Have they been, been taken over by all of this foreign steel and, and aluminum? No, they're, they're not. Uh, the U.S. steel industry certainly has contracted over the years, but that was a contraction that was sort of necessary, and steel is a steel production is a high fixed cost endeavor, and you have to produce a lot of steel at a given mill to, to cover the fixed costs. So the U.S. steel industry used to be scattered all about and uh, had a lot of inefficient mills, and over the past decade and a half or so, there was consolidation. Uh, the, the big integrated mills were given a run for their money by the mini mills, you know, the electric arc furnace producers who make their steel from, from scrap. Um, and, uh, you know, aluminum is, is similar. There, there is less production capacity in aluminum in the U.S. than there once was, but most of our imports come from friendly neighbors like Canada. Uh, and uh, I, I think this was just a pretext for trying to exert leverage to twist the arms of our trading partners, and that's just not the right way to go about things nowadays. I suppose if you are an America firster and you believe that trade is a zero-sum game, then, then maybe taking strong-arm tactics like that would make some sense, and maybe some people support that. But uh, this sets a terrible precedent, uh, and uh, it's, it's going to undermine supply chains. In the U.S., for every one steel, a worker in steel production, there are 46 in the steel using industries, you know, the appliance and autos and, and pipes and tubes, et cetera. Uh, and for every dollar to, to GDP that the steel industry uh, contributes, there are $29 contributed by uh, the steel using industry. So we're making a big mistake here. We're taxing ourselves and creating enemies, and that's just, just uh, it's, it's hard to fathom that we're here in, in the year 2018. Well, it seems even, even stranger to me, too. And, and, I mean, any industry that's going to get protection from government probably isn't going to mind that protection. But to see today the the Aluminum Association in the U.S. uh, denouncing this, I mean, it's one thing, I I guess maybe they were more concerned about Chinese aluminum and steel. But why would we be seeing the aluminum industry in the U.S. express concern about these tariffs that are ostensibly to protect them? Right. Well, because the aluminum industry is is globalized, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, there there are cross border supply chains, and there's also concern of retaliation. And uh, you know, most business people, uh, I would accept a couple of industries, perhaps the steel industry, uh, are uh, are led and you know dominated by people who recognize that uh, that trade is primarily trade in intermediate goods nowadays. Two thirds of global trade flows are not finished products, they are intermediate goods used by uh, producers to, 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 to make things and compete in the, in the global economy. You know, it's like the factory floor has sort of broken through its walls and now spans borders and oceans. And when you come into, into power and you resurrect these ideas that 
that uh, were tried decades ago um, in a different environment, it's going to backfire. It's like building a wall in the middle of, you know, Ford's 1950 Dearborn, Michigan plant, you know, in between, you know, right in the middle of the assembly line. So this, uh, so that's why the aluminum industry is opposed to this, because they're globalized, and they recognize that we're limiting our opportunities and we're exposing ourselves to all sorts of retaliation. Now, with, with any kind of protectionism, and, and tariffs in particular, there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. And as Milton Friedman himself once pointed out to us, the winners are going to be a little more visible. But when you start right. imposing costs across the board on all kinds of industries, you're going to have a lot of losers. Yes, no, there's, there's no question about it. Uh, the numbers that I mentioned earlier on steel um, are, you know, are, illustrate illustrate that point. But you know, we have a hard time making the case for trade. You know, I, I'm the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here, and our objective is to uh, inform the public and policymakers about the benefits of free trade and the cost of protectionism. And obviously, we're not doing <laughs> as good of a job as as we should. Uh, but it is easier to see. Um, the consequences of change, creative destruction. So if we were to get rid of our, our, our uh, clothing tariffs, for example, and then you see a, a clothing mill go out of business somewhere in you know, South Carolina, uh, then you, know, you see that and you say, oh, that happened because of the tariffs. But what you don't see is the, the extra resources that each family now has because it now has access to cheaper clothes and now has more resources to spend in other parts of the economy or to save, which gets lent out to entrepreneurs and, and, and businesses as they expand. So without, uh, it's, it, it's very difficult to attribute those positive developments to the freeing of trade. But it is a, it is a consequence. It's just there's two layers. To, you, have to, you, have to, you have to know what to look for in order to see that, and it's not that easy for everybody. And it's very easy for demagogues, uh, populists, to to try to put blinders on people to just look at the immediate effect look what i did i saved the steel industry well no you didn't <laughs> right because this makes input costs higher so for companies that use these products to build things it's going to drive up the price for them yes no no question about it and you know it, it used to be the case you know in the 1930s when we had smoot hawley and then the tit-for-tat protectionism around the world and the global depression uh, most products were made entirely in one location. I think I, I mentioned two-thirds of tr- trade flows are, are, are intermediate goods. It was less than one-third in 1930. Uh, so there were fewer interests in Washington or in Ottawa or in the capitals of the European c- countries saying, hey, you can't impose protection because we rely on these inputs for our own cost of, for our own production processes. There were far fewer, and nowadays there are many, many more. So I expect to hear from many more industries, and I really, frankly, can't understand why the U.S. Congress has not been more engaged in this. Uh, they are asleep at the wheel. Uh, of course, politics plays a big role, and Trump polls well in certain states, so it's hard to oppose his trade policy, but uh, it's, it's simply not an excuse. The president is uh, using trade, uh, the trade laws that have been granted to him uh, in a very mischievous and uh, debilitating manner. Let me just ask you a question about uh, dumping. You know, the, the idea that other countries are going to deliberately uh, drive down the price of, of their goods, they're going to flood the market in order to gobble up market share. I mean, is anyone doing that in, in terms of steel and aluminum? I mean, China's been, been accused of that, but I think China sends a, a very small amount of steel and aluminum into the U.S. 
Well, China sends a very very small amount, uh, primarily because most most of its exports are restricted. Uh, you know, the U.S. Is, is is one of the most intensive users of its anti-dumping law and, and countervailing duty law, uh, and uh, so we keep that that steel out. Look, it, it, it's it's a theoretical model, and it's sort of the quintessential. Um, illustration of why we ha- need laws to protect our industries, because there are foreign predators out there who will, you know, sell, um, you know, uh, sell very cheaply just to gain access to the market and then j- prop up their prices once they establish themselves as the predominant producer. Th- there's very little real-world evidence of that, I and mean, we live in a globalized economy. And if 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 uh, uh, if if, if a company like that tries to raise prices at some point, then others are going to get in, get come in under the umbrella. Um, and so, you know, things get arbitraged around the world because capital and, and well, to a lesser extent, labor and, and, and goods and services cross borders. And uh, But that that's an argument that has been used uh, to, to sort of insulate protectionists from the realities of what they're what they're proposing. Well, I guess we get to learn some of the lessons the hard way once again, unfortunately. Uh, Dan, much more. Cato.org, freetrade.org. I uh, really appreciate your insight here. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Rob. Take care. You too. Uh, Dan Eikenson, uh, director of the Herbert A. Stifel C- uh, Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.